So for those of you who didn't hear that, I do record this. My name is Chris Luciano. For those of you who don't know me, we do have some new faces. Uh, the rest have been put, they put up with me for a while. I'm going to go through the book of Daniel, but before we do that, I want to just go around the room and kind of embarrass everybody just because that's what I do. So we'll go around, we'll start with Jordan and work our way around counterclockwise just to let everybody know who you are. And No, well, apparently. <laughs> Jeremiah, Daniel. <laughs> Starting off well. I got somebody else stuck in my head right now. That's all right. I got somebody else stuck in my head right now. That's all right. And just to make okay. things more yeah. confusing, Chris is going to give us all new names. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. We'll just for this later one. chapter one. Daniel got, Daniel got a new name. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That's his that. Babylonian captivity yeah, name. Yes, there we go. That works. This is pretty well. So there's a signing sheet for those who don't know. I do put uh, my notes in any presentations I put up on a Dropbox. I'll send you emails with invites to that as well as the recordings in case you're not here. You can keep up. So we'll start with Jeremiah. Just give us your name and what you want to get out of this group and we'll just go around counterclockwise. And I've never really been through the book of Daniel in a Bible study so I jumped at the opportunity as I was doing this. So Hebrews went out well. So, looking forward to it. My name is Cheryl and, and I like eschatology and this is just reeking of it. So it'll be... Good to hear. Those who've never heard that word before, we'll talk about that word here in a few minutes. <laughs> um, I'm Caitlin, and I've done the book of Daniel once with a friend, but we didn't get to finish it because I had to leave. Um, so uh, I'm excited just to dive into it and learn what I didn't learn before. Cool. My name is Pat Emmer, and I just wanted to study the book of Daniel. Awesome. <laughs> My name is Debbie Reese, and um, I, I know he has prophesied about, you know, the, the dates and times of different events, and I haven't really done an in-depth study of that, and I really would like to delve into it more. You're up, Matt. I'm Matthew. Um, <laughs> I just, I'm always fascinated with end times stuff, <laughs> and I want to learn more about it. So. And I've never done a group study with Daniel. So. I'm Karen, and I just love studying any books of the Bible, but this one is really exciting because of the prophecy, and um, yeah, so I just, I'm excited, and Chris is a wonderful teacher, so I'll sit through any of your classes, Chris. <laughs> I don't think that picked, my eye, picked up my eyes rolling if it was loud enough. <laughs> anyway, thank you. Um, my name's Tim, and I kind of echo what she said. I have not suffered through, I have been blessed by... Revelation, First Timothy, Hebrews, and Genesis by Chris, and mm-hmm. I'm really looking forward to Daniel because some people look at it as a book of prophecies, some people look at it as a historical. It's got so much in it of everything that I think Chris is going to tease out quite a bit of really good stuff. So, thank you, um, Pat and Debbie. Um, I apologize. Now I am horrible with names, but I'm good with faces. So I will probably screw up your name for a while. Feel free to correct me anytime I screw it up. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know me, obviously my name is Chris Luciano. I am going to teach this book of Daniel. I've been teaching here for probably eight, nine years now. Wow. <laughs> I've taught Revelation twice. As Tim mentioned, I've gone through Romans. I've done First Timothy, Second Timothy. I've done Hebrews. I've done Genesis. This is the first time I've actually gotten to teach Daniel. So there will be a lot of overlap for those of you who put up with Genesis, uh, Revelation with me. Um, Frank is a little envious. He's been trying to teach on Dan- Daniel for about 20 some odd years and the Holy Spirit has told him no so far. So I get to teach something he hasn't taught yet and he wants to. But I, won't, I will uh, let that slide for now. 
But one of the things I'm going to get out of this, and it's kind of interesting because I got a lot of the, the comments about, you know, I've never done a formal study, never finished a study, the prophetic stuff, the eschatology, the study of end times things. What I'm, what I actually plan on getting out of this, at least what I plan on, we'll see if that actually happens or not, is the, the prophetic stuff, fine, I understand it, I've taught it, not a big deal. My thing is more of the, the application of how Daniel lived in this kind of environment. And I'm not going to go, I don't title my my classes or anything like this. This is a study on the book of Daniel. I keep it simple. I'm not going to be like a David Jeremiah, the handwriting on the wall, or a, you know, um, you know, a Charles Stanley, or these guys. You know, dare to be a Daniel. Those kind of things. It's a study on the book of Daniel. Okay. I use a lot of different commentaries. I use my 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 primary commentary is obviously the Holy Spirit. We're just going to go through the book from verse one all the way to the end of chapter twelve. That's simple. We're not going to skip anything. We're not going to avoid anything. We will hit the hard parts. I will try to explain it as best I can. I will try to explain it from my understanding of prophetic events that are have occurred and will occur. Most of the, this book is a lot of prophecy, as, you, as you've probably read and heard. But at the same time, it is a very good book on application of how to live for Christ, or in this case, live for God, Jehovah, in a culture that is very anti-God, or not even anti-God, but full of many other gods. And how do you discern truth in a situation like that? So today it's going to be primarily an overview of the book. Uh, we'll make it into chapter 1 a little bit, or chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, but we'll see. But it's primarily an overview to see where this book of Daniel actually fits in. Because this book, as we're going to... We'll get through parts of this and cover some apologetics when we get to those parts, because... This book is very heavily fought against by critics. Okay? They look at this book as written at a specific point in time, not when most of us believe it was written. They say, well, it can't because they don't believe in supernatural prophecy. They don't believe the God of the universe who was outside of time can say, I'm going to give Daniel this information, or Isaiah, or Ezekiel, or any of the above, and it's going to happen at this point in time. And they say, no, he had to have written it after the fact because, one, we don't believe in God, but two, we're going to get into some very, 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 and I don't know if I probably have more very, very specific prophecies in here, that, which is one of the reasons why they believe that it was written after the fact. And, but we'll talk about that as we go through. So we're going to do a quick overview of the book. And I say quick as in probably 30 minutes or so. Talking some key points and some history associated with this book because this is a historical book as well, and it actually is written at a point in time. And that point in time would be over a span of probably 80, 90 years, depending on who you talk to. And then we may or may not get into chapter 1. So the book of Daniel. I'm not going to get into much of the controversial stuff here. I'll get it more into it as we get into the chapters. Daniel is very clearly the author, with the exception of one chapter, and that's chapter 4. Chapter 4, very clearly written by King Nebuchadnezzar. And we'll get to that when we get to chapter 4, but that's a very interesting chapter. Written about 16th century BC, most likely somewhere around you know 605, 606, maybe a little bit later than that. So probably we'll just round it off to say 600 BC to around 540 BC is when this book takes place. But it's written around that time frame, mostly when Daniel, Daniel and everybody else is in captivity in Babylon. This is a historical book. We'll cover that here shortly. And it's a very prophetic book, and one of the few books in the Old Testament that deal with apocalyptic literature. 
very comparable to the book of Revelation, if you've ever studied Revelation. We're definitely going to deal with Revelation. Okay? What we're going to deal with in chapters, say chapters 2, chapter 7, specifically chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, and some others, if you don't understand those, the rest of the stuff we find in the New Testament, in Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, Luke 21, 1 and 2 Timothy, the book of Revelation, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. A lot of what we find in the New Testament prophetically is based upon the book of Daniel. And we're going to get into a whole lot of that, and you're going to, it's going to, you're going to want to poke your eyes out at some point. I try not to do that, but it will get painful. So the outline of the book. You've got 12 chapters in the book, and this is generally how it's broken out. You've got the first six chapters, which is essentially history, and the seven, seven, chapters 7 through 12 are essentially visions and dreams. There is some overlap in there, as we see with chapter 2 and so on. That's generally how this works out. Chapter 1 is typically going to focus on going into the captivity and a little bit of how Babylon works. Chapter 2, all about this dream Nebuchadnezzar has. And that's a, we're going to be, spend a little time in there because of what's going on with the dream and the implications of the dream. Chapter 3, everybody knows, is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the whole fiery furnace scenario. Chapter 4 is the whole issue with Nebuchadnezzar. God says, well, you didn't, you didn't acknowledge me, so you're going to go crawl around like a wolfman kind of dealy for you know, seven years or so. Chapter 5 is the one we are another... One thing, if, if you haven't read Daniel, you probably have heard at least one, if not all three, of the stories tied to this book. Daniel and Lion's Den, the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the handwriting on the wall with King Belshazzar. And chapter 5 is going to be about that, and it's going to be the fall of Babylon, where now we see the Medes and Persians take over. Chapter 6, Daniel and the Lion's Den. Chapter 7, now we get into a very heavy prophetic book where we're going to start dealing with God's interpretation of the dream he gave to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 with all these beasts. We're going to start talking about this little horn, the, the king of fierce countenance, and we're going to start talking about this individual called the Ancient of Days. Chapter 8, another prophetic vision of this ram and he goat. Chapter 9, I just put the 70 weeks prophecy up here, but guess what? The preponderance of that chapter is all about this phenomenal prayer. It's one of the most amazing prayers in the Bible that Daniel gives in the first part of chapter 9. We're spend a lot of time in, in that prayer as well. Seventy weeks. Yeah, seventy weeks. Okay. That's a very key prophecy in all prophecy. Chapter 9. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> chapter 10, we're going to see something we don't see anywhere else in the Bible. Well, one other place in Kings. We don't see really anywhere else in the Bible. We're going to see the, the dark side of what goes on in the spiritual realm here. This is where we see Daniel praying and God's, trying to, God's answering a prayer, sending a messenger to answer the prayer, and this messenger is intercepted. And we start talking about all the stuff behind the scenes there. So that's going to be an interesting chapter as well if you've never dug into that stuff. And then chapter 11 and 12 are primarily tied to the silent years, and I phrase that as the silent years, where the Old Testament doesn't really record any historical events for, for the last 400 years up until Christ. And then we get the consummation, essentially, of all things in chapter 12. That's about as basic as I can make this outline. One of the things you will find in this book is, for the most part, verse, chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, in the land of the Chaldeans. And verse chapters 1 and 7, uh, 7 to, uh, 8 and 12 are primarily written in Hebrew. There's a little bit of overlap there, but it is interesting when you look at that because it deals with the focus. Is the focus on Babylon? Is the focus on the Jews? We'll discuss all that as we go through. But just keep in mind, if you dig into any interlinearities, you're going to see it won't say the words in Hebrew, it will actually say Arabic in parentheses. Okay. Well, 
Welcome, welcome. Please join in. Sure, come on in. Hi. Chris, by the way, we'll do intros after, sorry. Uh, there's a sign in sheet for you guys. Uh, I do send out the recordings and put it in Dropbox, so I'll email everything you guys want to see with this. One of the things you see with this book is it's not like most other books in the Bible. It's not a, it's not a strictly chronological flow. The first four chapters are right in order. It's historical flow. Daniel goes into captivity. You get all the stuff all the way up to Nebuchadnezzar. And then we see chapter 5. Okay, it makes sense. Now we're dealing with Belshazzar. You see that there's a gap in time there. But don't forget, chapters 7 through 12 are prophetic. And as you see, most of those chapters will start off with something in the first year of Darius the king, in the third year of Cyrus, or whatever the case is. We see that chapter 7 and chapter 8 both fall in between chapters 4 and 5 chronologically. So Daniel gets those visions we see in chapter 7 and 8 before the fall of Babylon and the handwriting on the wall in chapter 5. Chapter 9 comes after chapter, chapter 5 because we see this in the first year of Darius. Darius has now conquered the kingdom, so we're not dealing with Babylon anymore. We're dealing with the Medes and the Persians, primarily the Medes. And there's a little bit of a debate as to where somebody's going. We see Daniel in the lion's den. He's obviously under Darius. We'll cover that in chapter, chapter 6. Chapter 11 and 12 say that they're also in the first year of Darius, so there's a little bit of play in exactly how these tie together. 10 is the one that we have a lot of controversies to where it goes. A lot. 10, 11, and 12 seem to all tie together, and I'm, I'm not opposed to it, but it, there's this one comment in the beginning of chapter 10 is in the third year of Cyrus the Persian. So it seems like it comes after. Grand scheme of things doesn't matter, but just keep in mind, this is the flow of how, when you read this book, this is the flow of how things play out. So when you get when we get done with chapter 5, and all of a sudden we get to chapter 7, going, wait a minute, we thought we were done with Belshazzar. No, it's just reminding us that it's not chronological. That's all this is. So it makes a little more sense when you understand chapter 1 doesn't go right before chapter 2, before chapter 3, always, in, in the book of Daniel. Okay? That is very helpful. Thank you You're so welcome. much. Okay. And I said that many goes there, but this is generally how it is. Okay? The last three or four I have on here, they kind of, there's some debate about it, but it is still generally the way it goes. Okay? got some key figures in this book. Obviously, Daniel. The book is named after him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, as you know by their Jewish names. Got a king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be the first Gentile king in history that the Bible really focuses on. Big name, very evil dude. But we're going to talk about him because things change with him in chapter 4. <laughs> we're going to see these guys come up, these Chaldeans, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians... The Chaldeans is just another name for hearing Magi, wise men. You see those guys pop up in, in the Gospels. Belshazzar, he's not a huge name in history, but he does show up as a, at a pivotal point because he's the ruler at the fall of Babylon. The Little Horn, we will definitely get into some big discussions about him. He's also known as the King of Fierce Countenance, the Beast, or the Antichrist. Cyrus and Darius, two of the kings we're going to talk about later. Darius is kind of debatable whether he's a king or not or just a governor of Jerusalem. Big names here. And obviously the book is about Christ. Every book in the Bible is about Christ in some way or another. So we're going to talk about him quite a lot. And you're going to see a lot of things we discuss, you can have him as an underlayment or a type of him somewhere in this book. I'm just going to touch on this very briefly. Like I said, we're going to get into some of the apologetics pieces as we get to it. Just in general with the book, a lot of critics say this cannot be written in that 6th century B.C. because of the specificity of these prophecies. They disregard God and supernatural events. 
therefore to say, no, it had to have been written sometime in probably the Maccabean Revolt area, 1st, 2nd century uh, B.C., before Christ came, that kind of thing. I'm just going to give you some quick answers for this. Nothing crazy. I'm not going to get in the weeds. If you want to have a, heart, a larger discussion about this, we can talk about that. The easiest answer here is the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament into Greek, Koine Greek, for most of the stuff that was quoted out of the New Testament came into play, including the book of Daniel in 270 B.C. That right there alleviates 99% of the discussion. If we look at other people who know Daniel and reference Daniel, you look at a prophet like Ezekiel, who actually talks about Daniel, compares Daniel to Noah and Job in his book. He's in captivity at the same time, in Babylon. We'll make it easy for you. Jesus actually references the guy in the book of Matthew. So he's a a real figure, written at a real time, referenced by Jesus, referenced by other prophets, and actually, this book, in its in its entirety, is included in the Septuagint translation. Prior to when these individuals say that they're going to late date this thing, thought it was written. Very simple answer, much larger discussion. But this is a very big battleground book for a lot of people who do not believe in supernatural events. Let alone this book, the Bible is a such. Some key verses. Every book has got a key verse or two in. Daniel two twenty eight. There is a God in heaven. He is sovereign. He is the ruler. But I tag this on to also to verse 417. This God in heaven, who is sovereign and a ruler, rules in the most, is the most high and rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he will and sets over the basis of men. God is sovereign. That is the theme of this entire book. He is the one sitting on the throne, outside of time, the omniscient, omnipresent one, not necessarily making things happen, but in control of everything that does happen. What we're going to see in this book, he actually makes certain things happen. And tied to what Frank has been talking about in Philippians, he's talked last week he talked about what's good. We see a guy like Nebuchadnezzar come to the throne. Is that good? Well, guess what? We find out that God places him on the throne. God's got a plan that we don't see. That is an underpinning of this entire book. Not to mention the Bible itself and just history. Look at some of these people he put in play. He put Nebuchadnezzar as king. He put Belshazzar as king. He put Caesar. Pick any of the Caesars you want. Nero. Hitler. And ultimately, we're going to see this little horn of the Antichrist is going to come into power. And every single one of those, God gave them power to do what he's got to do. He's got a plan. That's an under, a significant underpinning of this book. And you're going to start seeing it from verse 1 in this, in this book. So why do we study Daniel? The obvious ones, which everybody here pretty much mentioned. There's a lot of prophecy and eschatology. Eschatology is a $20 word for a study of end times, study of end things. And there's a difference between prophecy and eschatology, in case you're curious. Prophecy in this book does not necessarily follow end times things. We're going to see prophecy that's going to happen a few centuries later, from Daniel's perspective, as well as prophecy that's going to happen at the end of time. So eschatology is end time stuff. Prophecy just may be, you know, like a prophecy like in Genesis 3.15. The Messiah is going to come, he's going to crush the head of the serpent. Not end times, more mid-times if you want to phrase it that way. So that's prophecy. We're going to see here a tale of two cities. And I use that term very loosely. We're going to see God's city, Jerusalem. I'm going to see Satan's city, Babylon. Babylon showed up in Genesis chapter 10, 11, and 12, well, 10, 11, under the name of Babel. 
And we see Babylon all through history. It's going to be all the way to the book of Revelation. But this is going to be a, a tale of the two cities, primarily focused on Babylon, not necessarily Jerusalem. But he's going to show what God has done with Jerusalem during this time as well. <clears throat> the primary focus here when we deal with prophecy and end time stuff is dealing with the times of the Gentiles. And that term is pulled out of the book of Luke chapter 21. A lot of the prophecies we're going to see here are not Jewish prophecies until we get to chapter 7, more into 8 and 12. These are a lot of Gentile prophecies. The whole prophecy we see with the statue of head of gold all the way down, that's a Gentile prophecy. Ultimately ending with the king Jew, with the stone that was cut without hands that destroys the whole statue. We're going to see a lot of stuff going here with the throne room of God, kind of tied to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Uh, Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, other places like that. The throne room of God is a big thing here. Not necessarily a description of the throne room itself, but who's sitting on the throne and what he's doing. There's always a central location to everything inside and outside of this universe and all points to the throne of God. Actually, one of the things you're going to see in chapter 7 is this is the only, outside of Isaiah 6 maybe, this is one of the only places in the Bible where you're going to kind of get this image of God the Father as a person sitting on the throne. Knowing full well that he's not a person, he's a spirit. But that's the image you get here. It's actually a very interesting imagery. Is that where it tells about his, his throne chair on wheels? That, yes, <laughs> as well as tied to Ezekiel, yes. Little Horn, we will discuss this Antichrist individual when we get to chapter 7, chapter 10, chapter 11, a little bit in chapter 12. We're going to have a big discussion on him and who this guy is. We'll talk about this ram and heat goat prophecy we see in chapter 8. That is in itself is one of the ones that drives the critics of this book absolutely nuts, let alone what's going on in chapter 10 and 11. And then probably the biggest prophecy and one of the most important prophecies we're going to deal with when it comes to understanding the book of Revelation and Matthew and certain passages in the Gospels is this prophecy in, in chapter 9, verse 24 and 27 is all about the 70 weeks of Daniel. Okay? This 77, basically the 77s. Just put that in the back of your mind. We will not really discuss that until we get to chapter 9, and that will be a big discussion. Okay? And you will probably hate me as we go through that discussion because I can't just I can't just skim over that one. I have to go into some details on it because it just shows how amazing our God is and how amazing this world is. Mm-hmm. That's why you left 70 weeks for it. <laughs> <laughs> the application side of this We've got Daniel, this amazing figure, who's going to show us, as an example, of how to walk by faith. Not only how to walk by faith, how to walk by faith in a hostile environment, a hostile culture. Mm. Which will sound awfully familiar to where we are right now. Big practical application. How do we live by trust and faith in God under any circumstance? This book, and how Daniel lives in it, is going to go hand in hand with what Frank has been preaching on in the book of Philippians. How does this individual, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, how do they have that renewed mind in order to look at the circumstances that they're in and see God in it and live that way? That's what Daniel's going to show us. And I'm actually glad that we're starting this as Frank is still working on Philippians. We're going to do something I have not done in any of my classes yet. I've kind of glossed over it. We're going to dig into prayer. Daniel is one of the most amazing prayers in the Bible. Chapter 1, you're going to see an amazing prayer. Chapter 2, you're going to see it. Chapter 9 is phenomenal. We're going to discuss 
how Daniel prays and why he prays this way. And how maybe we may or may not be able to better our own prayer life. Because that's something I need to work on. So I'm going to get something out of that as well, I hope. We're going to see individuals here that are blessed of God because they take him and his word seriously. That's not something we really discuss much anymore. Now keep in mind, Daniel and everybody here we're talking about is still under the old covenant. It's not the new covenant we're talking about. But you're going to see grace and the new covenant intermixed everywhere in this book. And we'll, we'll talk about how that works as we go on. We're going to see a demonstration here of our relationship with God in the world. We're going to see how Daniel inter- interacts with God, how he communes with him. How he has, the Greek word here is koinonia. Okay? Obviously not here, but in the, in the New Testament translation, same terminology. How do we know and act on his will? And it all goes back to prayer. And then we're going to see how we're supposed to act with the world system and the people that live within it. Daniel is a critical figure in this. God's sovereignty, I think we've kind of beat that one to death, and God's character. Who can throw some things out? What, what is? How do you describe God's character? Faithful. Faithful? Just. Just? Righteous. Righteous. Merciful. Merciful. Would you describe God God's character as good? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Keep coming back to that because Frank just talked about it last week. Mm-hmm. One of the things we seem to forget about this book and what's going on, and we'll get into it in a little bit in the history. The Jews are going into captivity. They have ignored and blasphemed essentially the covenant of God. They have chosen not to follow God's covenant. And remember the Old Testament covenant. If you do what I call, tell you to do, I will bless you. If you don't do what I tell you to do and you don't follow the covenant, I'm not going to bless you. You're going to you're, you're essentially be judged. And this is centuries of God pushing off his judgment. And now God goes, the cup's running over. I got it. I got to judge you. Otherwise, I am no longer a righteous, just God. And I can no longer be considered good if I don't uphold my word. Hence, this captivity. Another thing that's underlying this whole thing that's going on here is this is this is a gracious, loving, just God who has allowed his people to go into captivity for a reason. We'll discuss that reason much later on. Most of you know me well enough. I throw a lot of quotes out here. So here's a couple quotes talking about God's sovereignty and God's character tied to the book of Daniel. And this is a James Montgomery Boyce. If you've never read him, he's a phenomenal writer. You know, not too far removed, you know, like a Matthew, um, like some of these guys that are you know, a few centuries ago. It says, In Daniel we have a stirring and helpful example of one who lived through secular and materialistic times and survived them, but who also actually triumphed in them and excelled in public life to the glory of God. We need people like that today. People who are aware of the dangers of trying to serve God in this world, but who trust God in spite of the dangers and who will not compromise. So we will definitely get into... The character of Daniel as well, which is a good reflection of God's character. Dale Davis is one you guys have probably never heard me use from before. He's actually, um, if you don't know me well enough, I love John Stott. Phenomenal commentator. He has edited a large portion of commentaries of the books of the Bible. and He only does certain books. He's done Romans and some other books. But he's the editor on this group, and Dale Davis is one of the ones he's approved in this. And he's 
he's actually brought some interesting things for me to think about in this study. He said, Two words of Jesus then might sum up the message of Daniel. The end is not yet, and but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. Both quoting from Mark 13. This is not what we usually like to hear, for we think, for example, of the planned annihilation of Christians in Somalia and Iraq, or the decades of deprivation and terror endured by Christians flocking in southern Sudan, or his servants tortured in Vietnam, and we long to tell them that the Lord has marked on his calendar a date in the very near future for their vindication. No, we have something like Daniel's book instead, a realistic survival manual for the saints. I thought about that and gone, I probably, I mean, you may update it by a few decades here, but you can't really say it much better than that. This is a survival survival manual for the saints. How do we live in the culture that we live in today? Because as we get, to the, as we get into this, the culture is not much different than it is now. In many ways, it's worse, but it's still a very hostile culture to Christianity. Complimentary studies, if you really want to start digging into this book, Obviously, Revelation. You cannot study Daniel without talking about Revelation. You can't study Daniel without talking about Ezekiel, Isaiah, Matthew 24, 25, Luke 17, 21, Mark 13, all these passages like that. We start talking about the end time stuff and the Antichrist, and you get to jump into 2 Thessalonians. And then we go back a few, well, a century and a half, and slightly prior to Daniel, Jeremiah is almost a contemporary. They kind of overlap a little bit. And you get the passages in Isaiah and Jeremiah talking about the book of Daniel and what's going on here. A lot of the prophecies in Isaiah, if they're not Messianic prophecies, they're actually talking about the prophecies of the judgment of the nation. Jeremiah's whole life was talking about the God prophesying of the judgment of the nation. So these are just complementary stories. Obviously, it's quite a lot. It's a lot of the New Testament and Old Testament. But we will touch on them throughout this chat, throughout this study. But the big one will be Revelation, Ezekiel, and others. So that's a very broad overview. Any questions about where we're going with this and the book of Daniel as a whole? There's a lot of information in there. We're going to dig into quite a lot of it as well. So let's open up to chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Karen, can you read verses 1 and 2? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylon, in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Okay. We're not going to get much farther than that today, so no. We start off this book, and, okay, we got some time references, which is good. Places in You've got this king by the name of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, okay? So we're talking about Israel. But we're talking about Israel in the sense of the kingdom is split after Solomon. We're dealing with the southern kingdom, not the northern kingdom. By this point in time, the northern kingdom has already been assimilated into the Assyrians, conquered them, and the southern kingdom hasn't caught a clue. The northern kingdom set up their set up their caps in Dan and Dan and Bethel. They started trying to set up their own temple up there, and they were doing their own thing. The vast majority of the tribes went up there. We typically say ten. It's not entirely true. They went up north, and they blasphemed God for decades. Probably a little longer than that, if I remember correctly. And God said, okay, the Assyrians are going to judge them. And he's actually using them as an example for the southern kingdom, and they just didn't learn a lesson. They went down the road pretty much the same way. So God said, fine, I'm going to raise up Babylon, and they're gonna, I'm going to use them as a, a tool of judgment. 
So in order to get to where we are right now, i got to give you a little bit of a history lesson. And this is a very, very broad-brush history lesson tied to 2 Kings, 2 Chronicles, a little bit of Jeremiah, and a little bit of Ezekiel. This is not the full history of Israel. Okay, don't, I'm not going to bore you with that. But most people have probably seen a chart something similar to this. If you've got a Ryrie Study Bible, a MacArthur Study Bible, they use something like this. It kind of gives you a chronological flow of where the books of the Bible fall out. And most of the things we don't understand is all what we consider the minor prophets, the things at the end of the Old Testament, take place prior to what we're going to talk about. Where we see here, we're talking about this period of time here, this, this time of captivity where it's dealing with Daniel, Ezekiel, boring on Jeremiah, getting into Ezra, Nehemiah, and the prophets that are, that are past them. We actually see the book of Daniel comes in at the end of, chronologically, the end of the Old Testament. We're now into this captivity. We're going to start a specific period of time where the Jews are no longer in Jerusalem and they are primarily in Babylon. This will be in the notes in case you ever want to see something like this again. It's kind of reference where things are. These are the last five kings of Judah that we talked about. Josiah was the last good king. He was the one who came to the throne when he was eight. They found the law under him. They were digging up some stuff and they're like, whoa, what is this? This is the law. How do you lose the law? I mean, this is the Jewish nation. How do you lose that? But they did. We had a huge revival in that nation under Josiah. Okay? Unfortunately, he didn't live that long. He pretty much died at 39 for some stupid things. But we see he has three kids and a grandkid. We'll say four kids for now. And obviously in red here, they all did evil in the sight of the Lord, as the book of Kings and Chronicles tells us. you got a guy by the name Jehoahaz who reigned for three months. He kind of annoyed a couple people and they murdered him. Jehoiakim is the one we're talking about here in verse 1. He's the guy who's reigning essentially from 609 to 598 BC. These are kind of, you're going to get some play in the chronologies here because of Egyptian chronology, Babylonian chronology, uh, Israeli chronology, what the Bible says. There's some play in the actual years here, so probably a couple of years off. But Jehoiakim is the one we're talking about. Not a horrendously horrible king, but horrible enough where God said he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So by that sense, bad king. We'll just leave it at that. We see Jehoiachin, another one who reigned for three months. You're going to find he's actually named three different, he's got three different names in the Bible. He's either Jehoiachin, Coniah, or Jeconiah, depending on your translation and where he is. I think Chronicles calls him uh, Jeconiah and Coniah. So you may hear him term that as well. And then Zedekiah, he shows up later. He's kind of a, you know, a, a figurehead. He's useless. But as you see, after Josiah, everybody's a bad king, so no kidding, you wonder why God's wanting to judge the nation. He's actually judging the nation ultimately because of King Manasseh, who was prior to that, who really, really, really pissed off God. Okay. Babylonian rulers. At this point in time, Nabopolassar is about to die, and his son Nebuchadnezzar is taking over. Okay, you got some other historical things going on outside of Jerusalem here. I just wrote this up there to see that there's a time, there's a line between this guy Nabopolassar through Nebuchadnezzar through Nabonidus into Belshazzar. Okay, so we've got a period of time where we're covering chapter 1 through chapter 5. Karen just opened her mouth. What's up? No, I always thought Belshazzar was a son of Nebuchadnezzar. Grandson, but we'll discuss that. Okay. And it's, a, it's a Hebrew and Babylonian terminology. They don't really have father, son, grandson, grandfather kind of thing. It's either fathers or sons. Okay. And it kind of branches oh. out much farther than that. Okay, was his name really evil, Merodach? Yes, actually it was. He's actually quoted that way in the Bible, too. To have a special meaning, other than 
Uh, <laughs> I know really that bad. <laughs> it a little bit, but I'm not sure. <laughs> because it... Yeah, it's yeah. got a whole lot of implications with that name. Yeah. yeah. So quick... Oh, quick my baby, movie. I'm going to name him Evil. <laughs> <laughs> And his last name's not Knievel, so yeah. No. <laughs> so brief history here. 612 BC, Nineveh falls to Babylon. Right? Babylon is now becoming a power in the world, and Nineveh, as you know, is the capital of Assyria. They've now cap- cap- captured Assyria, and at this point in time, Northern Kingdom's already assimilated into Assyria, so guess what? Where did Northern Kingdom go? Whole other discussion, they actually went back to Southern Kingdom and so on, stuff like that, but that's a whole discussion. 609, Pharaoh Necho, who's coming from Egypt, decides to go fight against Assyria. For some strange reason, Josiah decides, I'm going to fight against King Necho, uh, Pharaoh Necho. He died in this whole battle, as we see in 2 Chronicles 35. We have no idea why he did that. So the last good king of Israel mm. dies. The next good king of Israel we see is Christ, just so you know. 606, 605 BC, depending on secular dating, we get this famous battle of Carchemish. And we see Nebuchadnezzar defeats Pharaoh Necho and essentially becomes the world power at this point in time. The Assyrians are pretty much back to you know, living in villages. They're useless at this point. Egypt goes back to doing what they're going to do where they are now. And we see that we start having battles along the west bank of the Euphrates here, and we see this in the book of Jeremiah. Babylon has now become the world power, and as he's starting to, as he's starting to pull back from his battle with Egypt, guess who's in the way? Jerusalem. Well, guess what? Josiah didn't help his case by siding with them, so he's going to start sieging the city of Jerusalem. And this is the first siege of Jerusalem, around 605 to 606 B.C. There were actually three of them. We see in 2 Kings 24, as well as here in first, uh, chapter 1, God sends the siege. And there's a reason why it's phrased this way all through the book of Daniel. God sends the siege. Jehoiakim is kept in place and releases basically a vassal king. He's kind of useless. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that he's a useless king. We'll keep you in place to kind of you know, suppress the masses a little bit as best you can. Eh, it may work, it may not, but i got better things to do. Because I think around this time, I think his father died and he had to go back and back to Babylon and take care of some things. I think that's what ended up happening. Don't quote me on that. He partially plunges the temple, pulls a lot of the artifacts out of the temple, and he takes captives back to Babylon. Hence, verse 1. Daniel, Shananiah, Azariah, Mishael, and roughly 7,000 of them, give or take, depending on who you talk to. Okay. We see Jehoiakim, at this point in time, after this whole thing, decides, eh, I don't like this idea, and he rebels. Nebuchadnezzar comes in, squashes him, says, no, nope, you're coming with me, you're a prisoner of Babylon. Okay. The hostages that were taken were here. You find these guys also in the book of Ezekiel, Ezra, Nehemiah, a bunch of other passages talk about these prophecies. But we see here that this is the start of the servitude of the nation. We'll discuss that terminology later on. So they go back, they do the thing. Back, Daniel and all these guys are in captivity at this point in time. And a little later on, Jehoiachin comes, comes and decides, eh, I don't like this idea. I'm going to start rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar again, as if he didn't learn the first time. Against the advice of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who are prophesying, you are under God's judgment. Do not fight against Nebuchadnezzar. Put yourself under his under his mercy. No, we're going to fight. So Nebuchadnezzar now, again, comes sieges Babylon, takes some more stuff out of the temple, captures Jeconiah, pulls him back. Jeconiah's got an interesting story with his captivity, because it sounds like he was released later on. And then we take about 10,000 captives back to Babylon, 
And then when we get to the book of Ezekiel, we find out Ezekiel's in this group, along with the other guys. So now we've got two major prophets in, the, in Babylon. Daniel, for, we'll say he's probably about 15 years or so by now, and Ezekiel's also there. Zedekiah, who's the useless guy, is installed as a tassel king. Okay? He's just a figurehead. I'm not going to get into this little comment here, but there is something very interesting when we get to Jeremiah 22. At this point in time, God puts a blood curse on the royal line of Judah. Which then gets into the advantage of discussion when you deal with the Messiah and you get to Matthew and Luke and the lineage of Christ. Okay? Very interesting discussion. And you really, the quick answer is, um, Jesus actually came from the line of Judah on both sides of the family with Mary and Joseph. Whole other discussion, but it's interesting that this happens here. Zedekiah, again, ignores warnings, really, really, really annoys Nebuchadnezzar. He comes back and says, I'm done with Jerusalem this time. Sieges the city, destroys the city. At this point, Zedekiah decides, I don't know what I just got myself into. He decides to run. They catch him. They torture his family, kill his kids in front of him, put out his eyes, and then he goes to Babylon as a captive. You don't don't really get on the wrong side of Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to find out, especially in chapter 3. Temple's destroyed. City's destroyed. So this is the Temple of Solomon, by the way. This is the first temple that was built. And now we're going to get into that 70-year period called the Desolations of Jerusalem, which we will cover later on. So this is what we've got. you got three sieges here, all under the time of Babylon. We see Daniel and Ezekiel going in siege one, and then Ezekiel going in siege two, which is tied to Second Kings in the book of Second Chronicles. We know after chapter five... Babylon is captured by the Medes and the Persians, and we're just going to say Persia for this point in time because the Persia is the bigger of the two empires. They take over. We see later on in the book of Ezra, this decree of Cyrus to go back and rebuild the temple. They go into that whole thing and they run into all the problems they run into there. This is actually what we term as the servitude of the nations. It's a 70 year period of time from the first siege where Daniel goes into captivity to this decree of Cyrus where now they've gone from captivity to going back partially to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. We see later on this decree of Artaxerxes, which is in the book of Nehemiah, which is tied to the book of Nehemiah, and it's tied to the second siege, which is another 70-year period. They overlap, but they're not the same 70-year period, which confuses a lot of people, called the Desolations of Jerusalem. This is tied to Ezekiel, Nehemiah, going back and rebuilding the temple, and the walls, which you see in the book of Nehemiah, which actually comes into Daniel 9, which triggers the 70-week of Daniel. We'll talk about that a whole lot more in chapter 9, just giving you an idea of where things are. We see Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi falling later on, and thus ends the Old Testament, per se. Chris, where's the book of Esther in that? The book of Esther would fall more closely in um, Ezra. So it's probably about, I want to say, 40, 50 years after Daniel dies, give or take. Okay. Don't quote me on that, I have to double check the numbers, but it's after that, tied more to Ezra. But well, prior to the decree of Artaxerxes, right? Um, yes, it, it overlaps. There's a little bit of overlap in there because Artaxerxes is the king. Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes... Right, but doesn't uh, doesn't Haman have to die before... Doesn't he die before this? Haman dies, hung on a tree, before the decree, correct? I don't recall that. I have to look that one up. I'm not sure. But I'll, I'll find that out later. So that's just a very brief history. Okay? So let's get back to chapter 1 and chapter 2. But before we do that, i got to mention one other thing, because this should not surprise you, this is how God works. This is a prophecy given in Isaiah 39. Isaiah said to Hezekiah, who was the king at the time, 
Hear the word of the Lord, O host of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left. And they shall take some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's read the book of Daniel, this should sound awfully familiar. Mm-hmm. Very specific, actually. Yeah. Isaiah was roughly, at this point in time, 125, 150 years prior to the book of Daniel when this happened. So you had well over a century of prophets explaining to the kings, this is what the word of the Lord says, thus says the Lord, if we want to use that terminology, and ignore them. And here we are. So let's go back to chapter 1. In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hands, some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. One of the things I find absolutely interesting about this is some of the articles. Yeah, what were they? We don't know. My question has always been, was the ark part of this? Yeah, that was going be, because okay. this is where the ark goes missing. It depends on who you talk to. Supposedly, it went missing prior to this, but it's, yeah. there's well, so many different understandings of when the ark went missing. We know that some of them are serving implements because they're used mm-hmm. at the dinner. At the, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Cups yeah. and dishes. Right. But how was it able to plunder some of the treasures in there? Because anybody other than the most high priest would have been whacked as soon as he walked. We'll talk about that. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but that's always been one of my questions. Did the ark disappear here, disappear here or not? Right. We find out later on in Second Kings and Second Chronicles, as you see each of these sieges, you see Nebuchadnezzar taking more and more things out of the temple until we get to the third siege where the temple's gone, he's taken it all. Yeah. It is now all gone from the house of God into the house of ba- uh, the Babylonian gods. So one of the topics we discussed, very briefly, as, an un- as a theme of this entire book is God is sovereign. And just in these first two verses, we see God's sovereignty. And we don't look at it as God being sovereign because this is not considered quote-unquote good. This is God being sovereign, executing judgment. It's not something we like to hear or see. But guess what? He's going to do it again in the book of Revelation at some point. And this is where I'm... I'm, I never... I looked at two of these, but I never saw the third one in here that we're going to talk about. We see God's sovereignty as Him being an active sovereign in in this world and in this universe. We see Him as being a faithful sovereign, and we also see Him as being a humble sovereign. So when we say God being active as ruler in this world, from these two verses, what is he doing here? Well, he's orchestrating events to fulfill the prophecies. <laughs> yes. Um, and very involved, even, but also protecting the few godly remnants like Daniel and his four or three companions. Okay. So he personally delivered Jehoiakim. Excellent. Who did this? The word word of God very clearly says he gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't do this. He was just a tool. Mm -hmm. Guess what? Most of us are just tools in that sense. He's the one that orchestrated this thing. You will see later on, as we get into it, he brought Babylon to power specifically for the reason of judgment on the nation of Israel. That in itself is just amazing. He did the same thing with Assyria. So we see, the Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And you're going to see this all throughout here. We're going to see 
when we start dealing with Alexander the Great, and we start dealing with Belshazzar and all that, we see God gave whatever it is. God allowed whatever it is. God did whatever it is. That's the, that's the underpinning of this book. God is sovereign. He's the one in control. He's, no one, he's not the one dictating certain things, but he's the one overseeing all of it. And again, we look at this going, why would he put Nebuchadnezzar in power? Why would he put a Darius or a Cyrus in power? Why would he put anybody in power? Okay. He's got a reason for it. He's the sovereign. We don't see... We can't, I can't see past my nose half the time. Okay. God sees much, much farther than I can. And I'm so glad he does. <laughs> so when we say God is a faithful sovereign, just from these two verses, what do, what do you think we're talking about here? You kind of hit on a little bit where you know he's protecting Daniel and the and the the, uh, the remnant that's going into into Babylon. And what else? He does what he says. What do you mean by that? If he tells you I'm going to do this, it's going to happen. Okay, he said it for a couple centuries, hasn't he? he? Said it for longer than that. Actually, go back to Leviticus 23 with the with the covenant. You're 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 not following the covenant. If you're not going to follow the covenant. I told you in black and white, I don't have to bless you. I, Actually, you're, you're going to be under judgment, essentially. He's being a faithful sovereign here. He's being a faithful, righteous, just sovereign. But we don't like to hear that either. Because guess what? I'm a sinner, in that sense. Thank God for his blood. But for those who have not accepted that payment... In order to him, in order for me to believe he is a faithful, just God, and his son's blood paid for my eternity with him, I also have to believe that he's going to judge those who don't accept him. That's the kind of sovereign he is. I'm, I'm, it stinks, but I am very glad he is that kind of sovereign. Because now I trust him even more. Because what he says he's going to do, he's going to do. This is a demonstration of that. The one that was kind of Interesting to me was the last one. How is he a humble sovereign here? Well, he allowed some of his own articles to be placed into another house. What do you, what do you think? He, how's that being humble? Let's, let's take a step back. What does that actually mean to somebody who has no idea about the God we serve? Says he isn't powerful. He's weak. He's you know, useless. The Babylonian king is, can go in and take what he wants. My God is better than your God, right? Because it's under a false assumption that my God is going to stand up for me every single time and what I deem is good is he's going to defend me in this sense and he's going to uphold his name in this way. Well, guess what? They're under judgment. He is humbling himself in the sense to say, let the world believe it as much as they want. Their gods are better than my gods, because that's how they see this. I came in to your temple, the house of your god. I kicked over stuff, I stole the stuff, and I brought it back to the house of my god. Hmm. This had happened before, if you remember, when the Ark of the Covenant was taken. And I believe the god was Dagon for... I'm forgetting which country it is right now. We'll say the Philistines, because that's a general term. And they put the Ark in the cup, in, in their... Their temple. Mm. Do you remember, anybody remember what happened with that? They got one stay up. No, it kind of fell over. You know, had a whole hemorrhoid issue. Oh, all sorts of other issues going on there. We're not at that point in time anymore. They are not under judgment of God at that point in time. Now they are. God is humbling himself here 
to the ridicule, the name calling, all of that kind of stuff with your God's not your God's not mighty. Sort of sounds like you walk to go back there. Hmm. The Lord knew how when, how this would look when he gave his king, his people, his temple utensils into Babylonian power. Pagans would be singing, praise Marduk from all the blessings flow, which is why he is a humble sovereign. Because he shows here that he is a God who wills to suffer shame if it might awaken his people to their danger. We see the same tendency in Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage, but rather emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave and becoming obedient to the point of death, even to a death on the cross. Yahweh is a God willing to defile himself, quote-unquote there, if by doing so he can eventually purge his people. We're not even into verse 1 and we're already starting to see Christ. Old Testament again. I thought that was... I, I As many times as I've gone through this book, I never once saw that. But here it is. God humbling himself, dealing with the ridicule of the world and all these other nations thinking that they're better than he is. And here we are again. So that's a lot of information for today. Overviews typically are, we added a little history lesson. Next week it will be a little more interactive, more interesting. In some senses. So read chapter 1 for next week. As you're reading chapter, we're not going to go through the whole chapter, I'm just say read chapter 1 in general. As you're reading this chapter, think of how you would react in this situation. Okay? I know how I would react. And it's not like Daniel would react. Mm. Okay? Because of that, do I exhibit faith the way Daniel did? Okay? Again, question for me. Probably not. I'm probably you, you see four names in chapter one. Daniel, Daniel hasn't had I can't say them all together. Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. You don't hear about any of the other captives. No. I would probably be one of the other captives, honestly. Okay? And just think, at this point in time, Daniel's probably 14, 15 years old. Okay. I know where I was at 14, 15. I definitely would not have been like this. Like, oh, you want to give me all this stuff? Great. Would I be like that now, though? I don't know. One of those situations you don't know unless you put it into something. I say, I would love to be. Would you be someone who says, I'll eat only vegetables? No. No. <laughs> not, 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 not even, even, not not even, even on a good day. Broccoli last week, so we're not eating broccoli. But we'll have that discussion. I like not eating coffee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But look at the situation here and put yourself in Daniel's place and put yourself in the situation you're in right now at work in this environment. How does this relate to today? And right now, when I walk, how would I live in that situation? So we're dealing with the application now. We're not, dealing, we're not even getting into the prophetic stuff yet. We're dealing with the application. How do we live to be like Daniel lived in this situation? So that's where we're going to go next week. Since I have time, this, I'm going to try to remember to do this. I never had time to do this before with the other classes because we'd always end up way late. Okay. We're going to pray before we leave here. So. Oh. Yeah, I know. It kind of annoys me. I couldn't do it before, but no. timing didn't allow it. So, any questions before we go into prayer? Because there's a lot of stuff here, and we're, we will slow down some, just so you know. That was just a broad, huge overview. Okay. Next. Okay. Father, again, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've probably got rattling around in people's brains right now because I know there's some things rattling around in mine and I put this together and things changed from this morning to when I just sat here and said next. 
ask Father you go with us the rest of this week and just go before us, put a watch before our mouth and before our eyes and before our ears and just let us remind us who you are, Father, that you are a good Father and you are the one who is righteous and just and your spirit is the one filling us to do what you call us to do, no matter how it looks in the world. As you put your hand on Frank as he preaches today and just uh, let his words seep into our heart and into our ears and our mind and I'll apply it to our lives as we need to, Father, and just open everything we need is to let it in for As we be with everybody here for the remainder of the week, just like uh, to see everybody here next week and as they speak to them as they do their own study in this word, Father, it's just an amazing book and watching you do what you do through gaming. Mm. Ask us in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen.